I think I have run as fast and as hard as I could away from grief. And work is how I do it. That's public radio host and author Diane Rehm. Her program, The Diane Rehm Show, is based at WAMU in Washington, D.C., and is distributed nationally. Her recent memoir, On My Own, is a deeply personal book about her 54-year marriage. It details how her husband, John, decided to end his life after suffering from Parkinson's disease. This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Institute. The Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues. Today's talk is part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. John Ream's death was long and drawn out. With Parkinson's, he reached a point where he was no longer able to care for himself. He took matters into his own hands, refusing water, food, and medication. His death was unnecessarily extended, says wife Diane Rehm, because in Maryland, the state where he died, physician-assisted suicide isn't permitted. Rehm has become an advocate in the right-to-die debate. She says we all should be able to make such an important decision. Each of us, as human beings, is owed that right. We have no choice when we are born. We come into this world, we make our own decisions within the realm of the law. And at the end, I hope I have the right to die. On My Own is also about the coping and healing process following the death of a spouse. Reem talks about struggling to create a new reality for herself without her husband. She includes moving stories from recently widowed friends such as Roger Mudd and Susan Stanberg. Reem is interviewed by Elliot Gerson, Executive Vice President at the Aspen Institute, and his wife, Dr. Jessica Hurstein. Her late parents were close friends of the Reems. Here is their conversation, which is moving and starkly honest about a subject not often talked about so openly. Let, let me start, actually, in just observing sort of the obvious, which is that it is unusual, if not intimidating, to be interviewing someone who interviews people for a living <laughs> and, and does it perhaps better than anyone Thank in the you, world. Ellie. But it must be, Diane, a bit odd, although you've done other books, of course, which are wonderful, but this one you're going all around the country talking mm -hmm. about it, to be on the other side of an interview. And are there things that you have learned or observed being the subject of interviews? Elliot, I am, first of all, so pleased to have been invited to speak here at the Aspen Institute, most especially to have the two of you interview me. And thank you, Alma, for sponsoring these talks. Um, I really am quite comfortable, indeed rather relieved to be on the other side of the microphone. I don't have to think about what next question I'm going to pose or whether uh, my guest seems comfortable or uncomfortable or prepared to answer the next question. I can just be here and enjoy being here. Diane, it's such an honor to be sitting here with you. Oh, yes. I, thank, I thank you for, for coming and for, for putting up with both of us. Um, my father, in his final days, when he knew he was dying, and he too chose to give up treatment, he spoke about how important it was for him to connect with you. And one evening, uh, he said he was going to call you. When I came back with his dinner, he said he'd had a very special conversation with you. So, and you were indeed the last person who he called and the last person he spoke to outside of the immediate family. So I want to thank you for being there for him and for the long friendship that you shared. Oh my goodness, it was, I mean, your mother, a brilliant attorney, the first female 
head of the Harvard Law Review. Your father, a brilliant lawyer, uh, one of my husband's dearest friends. We were all together at the 50th Harvard reunion because Sean and your dad were classmates. And I can remember dancing with your father. So I was so touched when he called because I said, oh dear Bob, can I come see you? And he said, not today, maybe tomorrow. And I knew then that he would not be here tomorrow. I knew. And I said, oh dear Bob, I love you. And he said, Diane, I love you so much. And that was the last. So I missed them both. Thank you. Reading your book, it brings home to me what we have both probably experienced in some way and many others, how individual the grieving process is. You talk about needing to give in to the sense of loss and also how difficult it is to ever really get closure. You don't have final closure. I don't believe in closure. Uh, so many television commentators or interviewers say, well, did you achieve closure? I believe for myself, and I should not speak for everyone, I believe for myself that there will never be complete closure. I will always, always, forever miss John Rehm. I talk to him every day. It's been almost two years now, and I want you to know he talks back to me. <laughs> and as I sit in my studio um, recording for the morning's program, the uh, promos and the introduction, there's a big window behind me. So as I am waiting for the engineer to play back to me, I turn around, I look through that window, I look up at the clouds, and I talk to John. And sometimes he scolds me and says, you're doing too much, and you're trying to go too fast but it's part of the grieving process. I think I have run as fast and as hard as I could away from grief. And work is how I do it. You know, I, I had uh, a similar reaction to your discussion about closure in the book, because I, I feel the same way you do. I mean, I lost my mother 19 years ago, and there's not a day I don't think about her. And the notion that you can have closure about something like that, I find deeply, exactly. deeply troubling. But, you know, there's another uh, aspect of the book. I mean, there's so many that speak to all of us in so many ways, but you, you speak about the fear of being alone. And, and there is a special dimension, I presume, of, with respect to the loss of a spouse. You were married for 54 years. And I, and you, I think you, you, you said in the book that, you know, the team of Ream is no longer. Talk to us a little bit about that particular aspect of loss when it's to someone you have been a partner with for more than half a century. I'll back up a, a bit and say that I um, went from my parents' home an Arab home. My father came here from Beirut, Lebanon. My mother came here from Alexandria, Egypt. So I am a pure Arab. My mother died two months after I was married the first time. 
she wanted me to marry an Arab, which I did. I was 19. She died two months later, and my father died 11 months later of a broken heart. So I was 19. I was married for two years, and mine became the first divorce that the Arab-American community here in Washington had ever seen. It was very difficult for me as it was for them. John Rehm and I were married in 1959, and it was a fabulous courtship and a wonderful time together for many years, with the exception of the fact that he worked constantly. I mean, the whole notion of paternity leave or anything of that sort was not in existence, so I was a total homemaker for 14 years. And for three of those years, I had no car. So I was literally in the home and could not wait for weekends, those weekends that John Rehm could be at home with me, with the children, to do the errands together, to get out of the house other than for walking the children within the neighborhood. John Rehm was my attachment to the rest of the world. He was also my teacher. As I mentioned, he and Bob went together to Harvard. He had gone to Friends Seminary in New York on scholarship. He went from there to Harvard on scholarship, to Columbia Law on scholarship. I had no college education. So John Rehm became my teacher. And that really formed the basis of that early relationship. And then, as time went on, 14 years into our marriage, I began to think, what's the rest of my life going to be like? These kids are going to leave me. And John's already, you know, so totally into his work. So I began as a volunteer at this tiny little radio station on the campus at the American University which was not even a member then of NPR. As soon as you went off the curve, you lost the signal. <laughs> um, and we were in a little Quonset hut on the campus of AU. But before long, after my 10 months as a volunteer, then I was employed as a part-time worker and then as a full-time worker, I began to radio programs of my own. And when my former boss retired, WAMU by this time had become an NPR member. I got the job after they had interviewed more than 100 people which really surprised me because American University holds the license to WAMU and my competition at the end was a woman who had gone not only to Harvard but to graduate school as well. So I didn't think I had a chance and then the gods smiled on me, and there I was, and here I am. 
So, so you and John had been through a lot of ups and downs. You're very Absolutely. open in your book. Like, um, but there was an incredible bond there. Mm. And at the end, after living for, I believe, over 10 years with Parkinson's disease, mm -hmm. he made the personal decision that he wanted to die. Right. Now, it wasn't so easy to do that, but in the end, he did. He stopped eating and drinking. Now, you were still, it sounded like, enjoying some times together. You brought in an album and... Well, but the day before I brought that album in, John had asked for our daughter, who is a physician in Boston, she's at the Leahy Clinic, to be on the telephone. She had, he had asked our son, who is an academic at Mount St. Mary's University, to come down from Gettysburg to be in the room with his doctor and me. And John opened the conversation by saying, I am ready to die. He said, I can no longer feed myself. I can no longer bathe myself. I can in no way take care of myself any longer. I have fallen into degradation, and I wish to go no further. I am ready to die. Dr. Freed, will you help me? And Dr. Freed, a lovely, wonderful, very empathic doctor, said to John, in the state of Maryland, I cannot legally morally or ethically help you die. And John said he felt betrayed. I think he had in his mind that somehow the doctor would be willing to simply give him pills or give him some kind of an injection that would end his life immediately. The doctor then said to John, he had already said to me, Diane, you are a public figure. Your husband is well known. Please, Diane, do not do anything to help your husband die. And I promised I would not, though John and I had had so many discussions in our marriage about helping each other die if we had reached a point where we felt life was no longer worth living. The doctor then said to John, the only thing you can do for yourself is to stop eating food stop taking medication, and stop drinking water. Now, I'm sure you all know you can go a very long time without eating food, but you cannot go a very long time without drinking water. The organs begin to break down very, very quickly. As we left John's room that day, oh, and by the way, Jenny, our daughter, hollered to John, her father, on the phone, and said, but Dad, we can keep you comfortable. And John said, I don't want comfort. I have fallen as far as I want to go into degradation, I will not go further. We left his room that evening. I came back the next day with a photograph album I had made for him of his infancy. He was born in Paris, 
lived the first six years there, all the way through Friends Seminary in New York. I got onto his bed, I looked at him, and I said, sweetheart, you look wonderful. His face was pink, he, he was smiling, he looked so healthy. He said, it's because I've not had anything to eat, anything to drink, and the nurses have been told not to bring me any medication. I have begun my journey. And I said to him, I sat on the bed with him, put my arm around him, and I said, sweetheart, are you sure this is what you want? And he said, absolutely. I am ready for the next journey. And it took him 10 days to die which was excruciating. I'm sure you were very respectful of his decision, but was, did you also feel a sense of abandonment? No, I did not. I felt a temptation on the third or fourth day when he had fallen into a very deep sleep and no one had given him any morphine as yet. I felt a very, I mean, I had to hold myself back. I thought, if I put just a touch of applesauce onto his lips, if I put a few drops of water onto his mouth and say, sweetheart, Please come back. Don't go. Don't go. We, we really, really want you to stay. I felt that temptation, and it was measured, balanced by my respect for his decision. You write in the book about some of the differences between long, protracted dying and sudden death. I think, I think you reference Joan Didion's writing about the sudden death of her husband. And I think back, uh, and we all have memories like this, of my, my mother who had a very slow, difficult death from ovarian cancer. And the number of times she used to say to me and my siblings, you know, I wish I'd just get hit by a bus. What did you learn or what do you think about the differences in, in maybe in the grieving process or otherwise between loss from sudden death and loss from a death that is anticipated for a long period of time. You know, um, two months or a, a month and a half after John went into assisted living my dearest friend in the whole world, Jane Dixon, who was the Episcopal Bishop of the Diocese of Washington in Maryland. On Christmas night, younger than I, died in her sleep. She had had a big party the night before for her entire family at the building where we both lived and left her husband just totally bewildered, totally distraught, totally undone. There must have been 6,000, 7,000 people filling the cathedral at her memorial service because we were all so undone. She and I literally talked on the telephone every single day for 45 years. 
we had met each other at our church. And we loved each other. We raised our children together. We lamented our various complaints about our children, our lives, our husbands, our work, you know. And she said to me one day on the phone, Diane, promise you won't laugh when I tell you what I want to be. And I said, of course I won't laugh. And she said, I want to be a priest. And I said, Jane, you go for it. And John Walker was bishop at the time she got her first parish. And he stood at the pulpit and said, someday this woman will be a bishop. Wow. And there she did. She died. There I felt abandoned. I thought, how can you do this? I've lost my husband to assisted living, and now I'm losing you. I had never really, I'll never ever get over that. But here's what I want to say, and it's very important that I say this. John chose to die. I believe in the right to die. California has become the most recent state because the California Medical Association stood to the side and did not object to the legislature's passage of the right to die. Jerry Brown, in his signing statement, said, and I'm paraphrasing, I do not know, and this is a Jesuit speaking. He said, I do not know now what I would choose for myself at the end. What I do know is that I would not wish for someone else to make that decision for me. What I would like to see in this country is that each and every one of us has the right to choose. And by that, what I mean is, if you hold that God is the only being who can make that decision for you, I support you a hundred percent. If you decide that you want every treatment, every chemotherapy, every radiation therapy, and then all the palliative care possible, I support you 100%. And if you choose the right to die, I support you 100%. I believe that each of us as human beings is owed that right. We have no choice when we are born. We come into this world, we make our own decisions within the realm of the law. And at the end, I hope I had the right to die. I know I had the right to take my own life, but I hope that I shall have the right to have aid in dying. I believe in that very strongly. Well said. I know you're going to continue to be a strong voice in the next path you choose. Um, it's partly related to death and, and dying, I guess. Indeed.
Um, your writing is so personal, so emotional. It, it really stands out. Why did you decide to do that? And was it hard for you? You know, Jessica, I um, started writing this book the very night John was dying. Once he began that withdrawal from life, for two days, he was buoyant, he was happy, he was alive. And then he began that fall into sleep. On the, I stayed there the entire time, except going back to the apartment to sleep. I stayed there every day for 10 days, watching this man fall deeper and deeper and deeper into sleep. On that 10th night, I had the feeling he was going to go soon. So instead of going home, I put two chairs together next to his bed. I got on the chairs and I put my little long-haired chihuahua on my stomach <coughs> to sleep with me. And of course I couldn't sleep. So at two o'clock in the morning, I had my iPad with me. And that's when I got up and started writing and I wrote with rage, with rage to have you watch my husband go through 10 days of that kind of, I don't know whether he was suffering. I don't know what was happening to him internally, but I do know that I felt his suffering and felt how unfair it was to him. So I put that into words into my iPad. I wanted to express what I was seeing, what I was watching, what I was feeling. I was talking to the dog as I was writing and I wrote probably until about 5.30 in the morning when two nurses came in, I'll never forget this, I was so angry. They came in to turn him. And I said to them, my God, what are you doing? Why can't you just leave him be? Well, they said, we don't want him to have bed sores. Well, for God's sake. That's why I wrote this book as personally as I did, Jessica, because I wanted people to know John. I wanted them to experience with me the understanding of what it is to go through that kind of death. I wanted to put into it my own feelings about how I feel each of us deserves the right to choose. And John would have chosen medication to end his life quickly. And if laws and states change, people will have those I rights, think just California in, may be a tipping point. Kelly. And of course you write in the book of the Supreme Court of Canada decision. But I want to get back to the, the candor that Jessica talked about and, and the emotions I talked about that you write about in this book because you write it, it very personally about all the range of emotions. You talk about rage, but you also write about guilt and, and, and I was really struck by, by that. And, and the guilt earlier in his illness that you felt 
about not being able to take care of him for his last 18 months. And again, this is, it speaks to so many feelings other people have. I mean, the guilt my siblings and I feel about when we have to move my father into some kind of an assisted living in environment. Can you just talk to us a little bit about, about guilt and how it plays into all of this? I knew that I could not be the caretaker for John in his final years or days unless I completely gave up my work. I knew that our apartment could not hold an additional person 24 hours a day. But the guilt was mine because when we married, not everybody chose to use these words, but we married for better, for worse, in richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And I felt that the last night before we made the decision that John would go into assisted living, we were sleeping in separate rooms because Parkinson's disease had caused John to have a kind of jump every 10 seconds. And I would awaken with each of those movements. He was sleeping in a separate room, and at 3.30 in the morning, I woke up. I hadn't heard anything, at least consciously, but I went into the next room and found John on the floor in front of the bathroom. Everything you've heard about trying to lift another person is true. It's close to impossible. What I managed to do first was to get John onto his knees and then to pull him inch by inch back to his bed and then one limb at a time to get him finally back up on his bed. He immediately went back to sleep. By this time, it was four o'clock, five o'clock. I had to get up at five o'clock, so I never went back to sleep. And as I was leaving for work the next morning, he said to me from his bed, I'm so sorry, Diane, I guess we need to talk. And I said, yes, I guess we need to talk. And we both knew what we were going to talk about. So the next day, I started researching assisted living facilities in the area. And John agreed. He said, it's time. And we found Brighton Gardens quite near to us, a lovely facility that looks like a residence from the outside, and found a lovely bright room. And I managed to get the same fabric that we had in his bedroom to create draperies for there and got furniture. So it was a very comfortable room, but guilt does not leave you ever. Guilt says to me, sometimes in the middle of the night, Diane, why didn't you do that? Why couldn't you do that? And I can hear John Ream saying, sweetheart, stop. 
I can hear him saying that to me. Stop worrying. Stop. So guilt is part of it. Being alone is part of it. But you know, he used to say that being alone and being silent was like having a fresh drink of cold water. And because I am in the public so much now, I feel the same way. When I walk into my apartment and see my little dog come running toward me and know that that little dog and I are going to spend the evening together. It's perfect. That's wonderful. And you were different all along. You oh talk about how social you were and how retiring totally. he was. Totally. Totally. You and he both faced chronic disease for a long time. Mm -hmm. Very difficult diagnoses, difficult management, um, interfering with your lives. Um, do you have lessons that you have learned that you can share with us for other people who face or will face similar challenges? I think um, what I have learned most of all is the idea of acceptance of where that person is along that path. I mean, I watched John when he moved into Brighton Gardens at first, uh, certainly being totally tuned in to the news, reading the newspaper, sharing stories with me as soon as I walked in every day. And slowly, 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 I saw that interest in the outside world dissipate. And so I had to find other ways to engage him. And I can remember bringing in a set of Scrabble. And I brought in a set of Monopoly. And for a little while, he was interested in that. And then slowly, that receded. And then he asked me to read to him. And so I began reading, and I said, well, what would you like? Because he didn't used to ever want me to read to him. I think he had heard enough of my voice. <laughs> um, so he asked for Jude the Obscure, which was a downer book. <laughs> so about two hours or five, six days into that, he said, Enough already. <laughs> so then he asked me to read haiku to him. So I brought in a book of haiku and read those to him, and we loved those. He didn't want me to stop reading those. But finally, we just sat and talked about us and the amount of time we had wasted in our marriage. And it makes me cry to think about it. Um, long marriages have ups and downs. And the reason I wrote about those downs as well as the ups is because there are no perfect marriages. There are no perfect people. And though we were married and stuck it out, thank God, for 54 years, I never wanted to paint an unrealistic picture of what our marriage was. Because, and especially from the letters and notes I've gotten, I know that there are many people who share those feelings. 
Let me just stay on what Jessica was, was just asking, and, and that is co confronting a diagnosis of a disease with no cure. Right. I mean, for you, it was spasmodic dysphonia right. in 1998, I think. Right. And for John, it was Parkinson's in 2005. Right. And for many of us, we receive a diagnosis at some point when there's no cure. And often with that comes depression. Isn't there a risk, and how do you manage that risk, that people early in those diagnoses, if it were easier to choose death, if it were easier to choose death, isn't there a risk that some people might choose in the depth of a depression when they still have a long and happy future ahead of them? You know, I think you bring up a really good point. There was a situation where a person was diagnosed with a severe brain cancer and was told he only had six months to live and considered exactly that, suicide. And yet, somehow, a cure for the particular kind of brain cancer he had was found. And 20 years later, he was still alive. So of course, that risk exists. But that's why I so believe in choice. That man said, I decided to fight this. I decided I was going to try to obtain every possible treatment. And, and that's great. But depression is certainly a risk. John claimed he never had depression, which I don't believe for one minute because I do think he was depressed. But if he was, he would never take any medication for it. He simply reached that point of indignation at having to be fed. We had an Easter party the November before, I mean, the, an Easter party. He died in November. Easter was in April. Our daughter, her husband, our grandchildren, lots of friends, um, our son, his wife came, and John was seated at the head of the table. And we had the Easter brunch that we had had for 30 years at our home, when we would invite 40, 50 people and have everybody out on the patio and loving shrimp and all kinds of beautiful Easter food. And we made that brunch. And John could barely get that fork to his mouth. He finally put the fork down and would not eat anymore. I think he was embarrassed. And who could blame him? And so he then put his head down, his daughter sitting on his lap saying, Dad, would you like me to help you? And he said, no, thank you. So I think that that's how we have to honor and respect where each person is along the way of his or her illness. If it hadn't been for John, after I sat at home, for four months, not being able to talk. Finally, 
speaking with our doctor who said we have to get her to Johns Hopkins, we have to find out if she has ALS or throat cancer, and within one hour at Johns Hopkins, they diagnosed me with spasmodic dysphonia. I have injections into my very throat right there at the Adam's apple every four months. Um, and that has allowed me to stay on the air for all this time. And that was back in 1998. So in each case, I think you just have to be with that person and understand where that person is. I thank you all so much for being here. That's public radio host and author Diane Rehm speaking with the Aspen Institute's Executive Vice President Elliot Gerson and his wife, Dr. Jessica Hurstein. Rehm hosts the nationally syndicated radio program, The Diane Rehm Show, but will retire at the end of the year. Their conversation about death and bereavement was part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Institute at aspeninstitute.org. Follow the Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thank you for listening. <laughs>